All right, well, we are bravely um, starting a series in the book of Revelation. So a couple weeks ago, Darren start us, started us off. Now, we are going to focus on chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, which contain the specific words or letters to seven, seven churches in a, in a region of the ancient world. So we are going to focus on that part of Revelation, but because I'm just too much of a teacher and I can't help myself, we have to do just a little bit of review from last week to set up a little bit of that foundation before we get to today's church. And now that my PowerPoint is back, um, anyway, as we approach the book of Revelation, as I said last week, it's probably the most controversial book in Scripture, and it's one of those books that seems to have two extreme reactions. Either people get so overly fascinated by it that it becomes a distraction, or people just become so confused or even just turned off by it that they would rather just ignore it. And I, what I encouraged you last week was, let's not fall into either of those ditches, but let's realize that this is a beautiful book, a vision given to a, a writer by the name of John that he wrote down where Jesus revealed himself and incredible words of imagery and beauty were captured to reveal Jesus and to give hope to the church. So it's an incredible book, and I think if we understand it and read it responsibly, it's a beautiful book. So, um, as, I, as I've done a lot of reading about this, for, for many, and this, this is on the first slide, when they think of Revelation, they often just think of it as, is it a puzzle to be figured out? Is Revelation a problem to be solved? Or is Revelation actually a promise to be heard? Oh, we are good. Okay, there, there they are. wondered if we had technical difficulties, but we're good to go. Awesome. All right. Now, in studying Revelation, again, it's really important to carefully discern our sources. Um, and I'll just remind you of a quote I used last week where someone said, no other part of the Bible has provided such a happy hunting ground for all sorts of bizarre and dangerous interpretations. So, word number one, let's continue to be discerning and be careful. But can I also encourage you that before you just right away go to websites and commentaries and other places to figure out what this all means, how about start with the source? How about start with the book itself, the author John who wrote it, and remember that as a follower of Jesus, God's spirit lives within you. And it's the spirit that wants to open up God's word and understanding. And so I would encourage you to begin there. And I just, I, I put these words up from Revelation chapter 1-9 again, just because I want you to see the humility of this author, John. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. That's the author and that's the humble heart behind this book. A companion along with you in kingdom life and in the suffering and in the patient endurance that life often is. That's the, that's the beginning of this book and where the heart comes from. So just remember that as you, as you engage and study in this book and in other settings as well. And you know, there are so many themes and ideas and symbols and crazy stuff in Revelation, again, that has been misinterpreted and misunderstood for many, many times over the centuries. But you know, there are key themes in Revelation, and I just, just want to remind you of them again to, to just know what foundation we're talking about here in this incredible book. So in the next slide, it, the, these four themes, that Jesus, so why study? 
Jesus is revealed as the faithful witness. Therefore, we're called to faithful witness and resistance. Jesus in Revelation is revealed as the present one. And so therefore, we're called to attentive listening to the Spirit. Jesus is revealed in Revelation as the Lamb of God, both the Lamb of God that died for us and took away the sins of the world, but also the Lamb that sits on the throne. Those are the worship pictures of the Lamb. And so because of those worship pictures of the Lamb, that we're called to worship-infused living. And then a huge theme of Revelation is that Jesus is revealed as the coming one. And that gives us missional hope as we patiently endure and live out the gospel in our day and our time. So again, it's such a beautiful book to suffering churches of that day that needed a word of encouragement to endure and to know that their hope wasn't in an empire and wasn't in a government and wasn't in a leader, but their hope was in the true King of kings and Lord of lords, their Jesus Christ, who is going to return again and bring in the real kingdom. And that was the word of hope for them. And that's why all of that beautiful imagery and all of those pictures of revelation over and over again reveal Jesus and the hope we have in him as we endure through our life. And that is the overall theme and why revelation is so amazing and so worth studying. All right, so now to the church that we're gonna study today. So I promised you a map last week. So we're in church number three. So Darren started us off in Ephesus, and you'll see that church there, number one, and then last week was Smyrna, and this week is Pergamum. Now, this says Pergamos, which is, would be the more actual Greek name, but, but most of our Bibles are going to say Pergamum, so I'll continue to use that name as I talk about this church today. So if you look, look at that map, I hope that isn't too confusing to you non-map people, but that is modern-day Turkey. And if you see the little map in set, you can kind of see where Greece is, where Turkey is. Now, this area in the ancient world was all Roman Empire, of course, at that time, but it was all populated by Greeks. So all of that eastern part of Turkey was as Greek as what we would call Greece today. And all of these cities were very much Greek-influenced cities. And so you can see the little island of Patmos. That was where John, the author of Revelation, was exiled. So John was a leader in the church, and because of persecution, was sentenced by the governing authorities, and punishment was exiled to the island of Patmos. And as Revelation 1 tells us, it's on that island that he receives this revelation, gets these seven words or seven mini letters to these seven churches, and then he comes back to deliver this letter, and this letter gets delivered to all these churches. And so that's kind of the background and gives you a little bit of a visual of where, of where we're going today. So let's now turn to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, let's go to the church at Pergamum, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now with that image, let's just start there. So Jesus introduces himself to all of these different churches in kind of these unique symbolic ways to reveal who he is. And so for this church in Pergamum, he reveals himself as the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, to us, that's just kind of cool. To the original readers, the the, the double-edged sword was very significant because they understood that as being basically the most powerful individual weapon a person could possess. 
It was the favorite weapon of the Roman infantry. And the double-edged sword was commonly known as, as basically a killing instrument because it was very, very effective at what it was designed to do. And so the idea of the sword was an idea of strength and power. And that imagery of the sword all through Scripture is connected to words. So the idea of the double-edged sword referring to Jesus is that Jesus, the word, or the words of Jesus are powerful, very powerful. And that's, that's what Jesus is being, uh, is why he's introducing himself in that way. And we'll find out a little later is that the reason for that context is, is that this church's problem is false teachers and false teaching in the church. And so Jesus is introducing himself as the powerful authority with the words to correct the false, truth over false. And that's the power of the words that Jesus is, is revealing here, right? Right off the top with his introduction. So again, all through Scripture, the sword is connected to the word, to the words of Jesus, to the words of God. And you see that in many places. I want to show you one in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It's the next slide. That is a very, very common but awesome one. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That would really capture how Jesus is introducing himself to this church. He's got the authority and the words to like just rip right to the heart. So it's a little intimidating in a way, isn't it? And then later at the end of the text we're in today, Jesus will make this even clearer when he says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them, meaning the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. So just so we're clear about the sword and that image and it being about the words of Jesus. So let's keep reading now, Revelation 2, verse, verse 13. It says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. All right, so how many of you would be signing up to be a resident of Pergamum? To live where Jesus says Satan lives, where Satan's throne is. That sounds uh, pretty incredible and pretty extreme. So what about this, uh, this city of Pergamum? Well, when we talked last week about Ephesus and Smyrna, they were both coastal cities, so they were very much known as commercial centers and uh, wealthy centers and commercial ports, and that was in many ways their claim to fame. Now, Pergamum was also a prominent city, but for quite different reasons. It was probably more of a political city or perhaps a government town and a, a medical center. I'll explain more of that later. But Pergamum um, literally meant citadel. And it was the, the uh, Acropolis or the citadel of the city, you can see it in the pictures behind you, was the, on the top of a hill. And yet most of the city was built along the side of this hill. Now, on the top of this large Acropolis, or this large hill, there were actually four temples. One temple to, the Rome, to a Roman emperor, and three temples to the gods. Besides all the temples, on the top of that Acropolis was a very famous library. This library boasted over 200,000 volumes, which is incredible for ancient times when you're talking scrolls. 
And this library was, was second only to the most famous ancient library, which was in Alexandria, Egypt. But that's how important this library was. You can also see the amphitheater in that picture. Can you imagine how huge that is? And the thousands of people that would gather with no application. We almost had that this morning. What would we do without it? But they were able to come to, to all kinds of cultural, dramatic presentations, to religious things, to, to um, yeah, probably sporting events. All kinds of activities would have happened there. It was a huge cultural center and just thousands of people gathering. So it kind of gives you a, a little bit of a feel for this city. The other thing about Pergamum that's interesting is that Pergamum was kind of the first city of that Asia Minor area. That's what they called it then. It's today modern-day Turkey. But when that area became a part of the Roman Empire, Pergamum was one of the first cities to embrace the empire. And so one of the early and most famous Caesars, Augustus, had a temple built there. So there was a, there's a temple in Pergamum to the Emperor Augustus, and that was kind of their claim to fame. And so that's, that's a little bit about the city. So with all that, are you starting to put together why Jesus is saying, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and where it seems to be Satan's city. Now, as you can imagine, there is a ton of speculation with historians and scholars about which one of these temples or ancient sites could be Satan's throne. So, um, probably the most, maybe the most common or obvious choice might be the Temple of Zeus. So that was one of the temples in Pergamum. And Zeus is the head god in Greek mythology. So since he's the head and the most famous god, and apparently this temple had like a huge altar area that almost looked like a gigantic throne is, is, was kind of the design. So, so many think that that may be, may be Satan's throne in this, in this imagery. There's also a very incredible temple built to Asepius, Probably I'm pronouncing that wrong. I tried to practice, but this was the Greek god of medicine, basically, or of healing. And one of these temples was actually more of a hospital. It was a healing center that people would come from, from far away because they wanted to be healed in this temple. And what was incredible about this temple was that their symbol for healing was a pillar with a snake around it. And if you know, even that today's medical symbol is very similar because it's based on all of that Greek mythology. So that was a very, very important temple and, and one that, um, that Pergamum was very, was very famous for. So that's listed as a possibility. I told you earlier that they built a temple to honor the Emperor Augustus. And so just like the other cities we've learned about, they had not only pagan god worship going on, but they also had emperor worship. So they kind of had it all. So in some ways, our scholars would say, take your pick. And probably what Jesus means overall is maybe it's, we're not fishing for an exact throne, but we're just saying this was a city whose whole culture and whole existence was just steeped in paganism, false god worship, emperor worship. It was Satan's realm, Satan's place. And that's very, very much likely what it's all about. And so that's why then when people take this and they speculate about our time, and they would say, okay, well, where would Satan's throne be today in our world? Well, my answer to that would probably be it might depend where you live. If you were living in the eastern part of the world, you probably would think that the United States of America was Satan's throne. 
Or you might even get more specific and think that it's Hollywood, or maybe um, Las Vegas, the Sin City, or maybe somewhere like New York where the UN is. You know, for us with Western mindsets, and if you're old like me and lived through the Cold War, we all would have thought, oh, it's Moscow, right? Maybe people think that again with all the things that Putin is doing to Ukraine. Or lots of other places where there's so much injustice and, and um, human rights being violated in, in places like Iran. And so anyway, we could, you could go on and on speculating. But I think bottom line, the idea that Jesus is talking about to these Christians in Pergamum is you're in a place where culturally, socially, and everything about this city is not devoted to God, but devoted to everything opposite of God. And we could probably name that culturally in many, many places. And so just kind of have that understanding, even as we want to hear the voice of the Spirit to us as we live in a nation and sadly a culture that's becoming more and more anti-God all the time. And so that's a part of that. That was their reality and just, just something for us to think about. So now back, back to the text. So that's the setting of, of Pergamum where Satan has his throne. And, and yet, just a reminder, this is, this is their encouragement. So even in the midst of, of Jesus saying, yeah, you, I know where you live, where Satan is, yet you haven't renounced your faith and even brought up Antipas, which we don't know much about but would have been one of the first martyrs. And obviously everyone knew the story because John is writing in a way that everybody knows who he's talking about. And so yeah, the, the, the whole string of martyrs that began, there was persecution, but Jesus is saying, hey, you've stood up for your faith. You've stood up for who I am even in the midst of all of the paganism and Roman, Roman Empire worship around you. So that was the encouragement, and yet when we come now, we come now to verse 14, where Jesus says, nevertheless, that's always the best part in your discussion with your parents, right, kids? It's like, okay, you're doing really well in school. However, you're going, oh no, here it comes. Feels a little bit like that. But anyway, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. All right, so Jesus says, nevertheless, you've got some false teachers and some false teaching ideologies that are being lived out in your church. And he describes the first one as the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam is not a literal person in Pergamum or a literal teaching in Pergamum, but Balaam is referring to an individual way back in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, some of you may know the story. It's actually quite a long story. Maybe some of you don't, so I will try to give you, like, the briefest version of the story so we can understand who these people are. But Balaam was basically a prophet for hire. And way back in Israel's history, even before they were a nation, they were still like a a traveling desert mob. And as they were getting closer to the promised land, they had to go through a country named Moab. The king of this country is Balak, the other character here. So Balak sees this mob of people that are wanting to pass through his country and he's going, ugh, I don't want this to happen. 
So he knew about this profit for hire. And if you paid this profit the right amount of money, they would curse the people that you wanted to defeat, and those curses worked, and he had a reputation for this. So Balak goes to Balaam and says, I want you to curse these Hebrew people, these Israelites that are, about, that are at my nation. So it's a fascinating story. Now there's a part of the story here that is the most famous part of the story. And if you grew up in Sunday school, do you remember the talking donkey story? Okay, some of you are going, oh, the talking donkey story. But you know what? That really has really not very little to do with the story, but it is interesting. If you want to go back to Numbers 20, where did I have it here? 22 to 25, you can read about the talking, talking donkey. But anyway, that, that's just a bit of an aside. So this Balaam character, because he's going to get big money from this King Balak to curse the Israelites, he tries over and over again to do this. But the irony is, is that God keeps intervening and saying to to Balaam, you can't curse them, and puts his words in his mouth, and he ends up blessing the Israelites. And this happens three times over to where they finally give up. Now, at the end of that part of the story, we think that, that they've given up, but then there's this insidious strategy to get the Israelite people a different way. And we actually don't know about this until a few chapters later. But in Numbers 31.16, that's, that's in the next slide there, the author here explains and says, they refer, were the ones who had followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. You see, when Balaam failed in being able to curse them, according to the scripture, he went to Balak and said, okay, I know how you can get these guys. You get them to compromise and turn on their God, you got them. And the story in Numbers tells us that Balak and the people of Moab devised a plan and they invited all of the Jewish people to a worship celebration. Come and worship with us. And they came and they worshipped with them. And in the course of that worship, there was, um, there was basically feasting and banquets where they ate meat that was sacrificed to idols. So in a sense, they were worshipping the idols of other people and not worshipping their own God. And a, and a part of these huge worship festivals was a ton of sexual immorality that they all participated in while they were worshipping and compromising by eating all this food sacrificed to the idols. And so... God's people turned on God and committed all of this sin and basically Balak found another way to curse them. And there's more to that story. You can read that if you are bored this afternoon and want to go back to Numbers. But this idea of Balaam and his, the, what's called the way of Balaam, and you see on my screen there that it's always associated with greed and compromise. It's associated with spiritual adultery and actual adultery sexual immorality. And so this way of Balaam gets picked up many times in Scripture and even in the New Testament as kind of an example, the ultimate example of of the church or of Christians compromising against following God and being faithful to him. It's going the way of Balaam would be kind of a saying. That's where that all comes from. So you'll see one example in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you're seeing on the screen already. And uh, this is Peter talking about false teachers in the church. So it's pretty strong language. He says, he's describing them. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed cursed brood. 
They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. So that's, that's the background to what this whole way of Balaam is all about. And Jesus is saying to them, this, that compromise that had God's people basically commit adultery and spiritual adultery against me is what you're doing when you follow this teaching of compromise. It's a very powerful word. He goes on to talk about another group of people, another group of false teachers that are called the Nicolaitans. And I won't go into much. There's really not much that is known about the Nicolaitans. Probably they would have had similar teaching of compromise, but they were most known for the kind of teaching that was about the abuse of power. It was basically leadership being, um, being abusive and holding their leadership over others. That was kind of the mark of the Nicolaitans, that kind of abusive authoritarian kind of leadership. And basically that's another thing that Jesus is calling out is that that is not the Jesus way or the church way and another false teaching in the church. So in the midst of all of this is Jesus saying to them, I know you're suffering where you're living. I know what's really hard. I know the temptation to compromise in the culture you live in is great, but I'm calling you to repent from all of the compromise. So you have to understand how hard this was. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the church of Smyrna, and Jesus said to them, I know your poverty and how much you suffer. And the reason those people suffered and were in so much poverty was because their stand for Jesus and their faith bent, they didn't participate in emperor worship or pagan worship. Therefore, they weren't allowed into the trade guilds, which were the way that people were able to do business and be able to make money and have jobs. And so because they didn't go to temple worship and didn't participate, they weren't a part of those guilds and they lived with persecution and poverty because of that. Now, likely in this church in Pergamum, it was the same situation, and yet they had this teaching of Balaam and this influence of the Nicolaitans that basically was saying, you know what, it'll be okay. You can compromise because, hey, we all need to make a living. We all need to eat. We all can, you know, like, we can go to temple worship and go to these um, guild feasts and banquets that are that are just all about immorality and everything else, it's okay, we can, you know, we, may, we can just mix in there, we don't really have to participate, but we need to do this for our livelihood. Can you see how hard that would be? That would be really hard. And you know, as, I, as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, how am I any different in the culture I live in? How discerning am I in my culture, or do I justify myself all the time? It's like, well, I can embrace this part of culture. It doesn't mean I'm worshiping or that I'm being unfaithful. I just, it's just a part of being a part of my culture. Now, I don't have an answer for where that line is, and I don't want to be black and white and be a Nicolaitan about it. But I just want to expose our hearts in this to say, you know, before we look at this situation that seems so extreme to us, we also have to look at our lives and our church and say, okay, Holy Spirit, where are we compromising? Where are we compromising with our culture in a way that is a form of spiritual adultery? Where we're not being faithful to our call and our stand as followers of Jesus, but we're just kind of blending in and being a part of culture because it's beneficial for us. 
So that's the struggle they had. That's the struggle we have in our culture that seems to be changing and changing all the time away, away from a God perspective. How do we live in it without compromise and yet live in it with the light and hope of the gospel? That is such a huge discernment piece and something that we need to walk together with as followers of Jesus and as a spiritual community. So I just want you to know how hard this was for them. Our situation isn't quite life and death yet or isn't that kind of poverty decisions we have to make. And yet that was their decisions. They were often life and death and the choice of poverty or not being able to do business or advance in your career or get any kind of promotion or position. All of those kinds of things were sacrificed if you were going to stay away from the teaching of Balaam. So anyway, that was the extreme difficulty of the situation of this church in Pergamum. And isn't it interesting how in Smyrna, they were poor and persecuted and Jesus had no, nothing but encouragement for them in the midst of all that. And yet for this church, they're not, they're not so poor and they're, they're not persecuted quite as severely. And again, it seems to be because there's compromise. One, one author simply put it this way, he said, do you want the meat of compromise or the provision, or we're going to come to and admit the manna of the eternal provision of Jesus? So, there, there we are at the, at the darkest part of the story right now for this Pergamum church, a very, very difficult situation for them to be in. Just before we read the final verses of hope, just, just this little aside, I was really privileged um, last weekend to be invited to a Bible study with a group of men in our church who are studying Revelation. And uh, it was just awesome to be a part of that and to, and to, to just hear the, both the balance and yet the passion towards the book. Anyway, what really impacted me was that the teacher had a whiteboard there and basically had three words on it that pretty much outlined in very simple way what Revelation is all about, what the church is called to through the book of Revelation. And those three words, I can still see them emblazed in front of me, they were repent, listen, and persevere. That's the call. That was the call that came from Revelation to the church of that day. Repent, listen to the Holy Spirit, and then persevere through this Christian life, this life that you're called to live. That's the word of Revelation. Do you see it? It's just exactly in this passage, right? Like if we back up to verse 16, Jesus says, repent therefore. And then jumping ahead now to verse 17 at the end, repent therefore. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Listen. And to the one who is victorious, victorious over all of the endurance and persecution and difficulty, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. Now here's what's so encouraging to me, that yes, the overall message is repent, listen, and persevere. But coming out of that is a promise, actually a couple promises today. Promises from Jesus himself to those who are overcomers, to those who are victorious, even through the difficulties of persevering through the hardest days and hardest ways of compromise. There's promise 
for patiently enduring and being faithful through that, being victorious, being overcomers. And these are incredible promises. So the first promise there is that they will be given some of the hidden manna. Now, that, that word hidden wasn't there. This would be very easy to explain. But manna was when God provided supernatural bread to the Israelite people when they were starving in the desert. And so manna was provision from God, and so manna is always symbolic with God's provision. Now, the fact that this is called the hidden manna gives a little bit of intrigue to the whole story. So, see if I can explain this quickly. So the Israelites, um, when they were a nation, they had a very special worship box, I guess, that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was this very, very beautifully gold innate box that was kind of the key of their worship that would sit in the holy holies and represent the presence of God to them. And inside this ark was the Ten Commandments from Moses, a few other artifacts, but also a jar of manna known as the hidden manna. Now, this ark sat in the temple until the year 500 B.C., when the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and then this ark was stolen. So, historians have no idea if this ark was destroyed or hidden somewhere, but according to Jewish tradition, that ark has always been hidden somewhere. And if you remember the 80s movies, some of you, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's always been lots of crazy speculation around where is the lost ark of the covenant. Now, the Jewish tradition believed, though, that when Messiah comes, the ark will be found again and the hidden manna will be revealed again. So that was the hope. So what is Jesus saying here by, you're going to receive the hidden manna? Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus declared in the Gospels that he himself was Messiah and as Messiah, that he himself is the hidden manna revealed. Do you remember how Jesus declared himself as the bread of life? As Jesus declared himself to be the bread of life, he was in a sense saying, I'm fulfilling this. I, as your Messiah, am here. I am your provision. I am your sustenance. I am the bread of life. And so what Jesus is promising here is that if you're faithful, if you're an overcomer, you will receive me. You will receive my strength my power, my sustenance, my provision. You see, that's the promise for us. In the, in the suffering and the patient endurance and in the difficult walk of not compromising in our culture, the promise is Jesus' presence and provision and sustenance for us through it. Sadly, he doesn't promise to take it away while we're living in this world and in this life. But he does promise the power of his presence the power of his sustenance in our life. And so that's the first beautiful promise is this hidden manna. But I think the next one's even more amazing because he says, and then I'll give you a white stone. You know, and on, and on this white stone, you'll be given a new name, a name known only to Jesus and the one receiving it. Wow, what does that all mean? Well, you know, studying about white stones in that culture it was common for, little, for white stones to be inscripted with words or symbols because a white stone was something really nice to write on, especially in the ancient world. And so these stones would be used for all kinds of purposes, gifts, mementos. Um, they were also even sometimes used like tickets to a concert. 
So to get into an event or to be invited to something special, you might be given a white stone with an inscription on it that was your entranceway. And so some speculate that that idea, in terms of what Jesus is saying, you're going to be given a white stone that's going to get you into the ultimate heavenly banquet, meaning the kingdom of God or the, the paradise of God. So kind of like the ultimate entrance to heaven with your name on the white stone. So that, that's one possibility to what this means. Apparently as well, in ancient courtrooms, um, you were given either a white stone or a black stone. So a black stone was conviction of the crime and a white stone was acquittal of the crime. So there's some that wonder if there's a connection to the white stone that way. But either way, they were familiar with the image of the white stone being something very special and very precious that gained you entry or, or was a special gift that meant something really significant. But here's what's so cool that Jesus is saying. He's saying, I will, for those of you who overcome, I will give you a white stone with a name written on it. A name known only to me and to you. It's amazing. Now, I don't know how far we can pull this into our lives and our time. I'm just going to offer this humbly, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to offer it from my heart to yours. What do you think? Do you think that Jesus wants to offer you a white stone with a special name on it, known only to him and you? What if? Now, maybe I'm crazy, and maybe I'm pushing Scripture farther than I should, and that's okay. You can just write this part off. But, you know, I just have a sense today to call you to faith, to call you to a Jesus who so loves you that he knows your name. And you know what? Whatever your identity may be, and for so many of us, sadly, we live with such a negative identity of ourselves. Can I encourage you to today to believe that your Jesus, who loves you and died for you, is calling you to be an overcomer and he wants to give you a white stone with a name on it, a special name for you, a special name that is truly your identity, not the negative things you think about, not the insecurities you have, not the past mistakes, not the struggles and doubts, not all of the words and curses from other people who have said negative things about you. That is garbage and gone because in Christ, you are a new creation. And he wants to give you a name that is an identity that is you because you are his special daughter, his special son. I believe with all my heart that's God's heart for you. And if I could encourage you today, would you, would you do something just a little bit crazy? Would you be willing this week to spend time in prayer and ask Jesus to reveal your name to you? To you? I can't guarantee anything. But I, it's a suggestion. It's an invitation. Pray this week and say, Jesus, can you change my identity and give me a new name? A name known only to us. Do you think he knows you that personally? Do you think he watches you and knows your life that personally? I believe the scripture says it's true. Now remember, the call to that is not an easy call, right? These are beautiful, incredible promises, but remember, 
the way to that promise was repent, listen, listen to the Spirit of God, and then to persevere. Because life is full and full of difficulties and struggles and having to live in a world where we're tempted to compromise all the time. That's our reality. We live in that same reality. But the promise is the hidden manna and the white stone, the white stone of victory with your name on it because you belong to him. So my sisters and my brothers here at Bridgeway and every and everyone listening, followers of Jesus, let's hang on to that hope. Let's be there for each other because, yeah, there's lots of patient endurance through the difficulties in life. We need each other and we need our Jesus. But let's know the incredible hope that we have in him. So, Lord Jesus, I pray just for protection over this congregation that if any of these crazy ideas are of dawn, that you would just reveal them to be that and wipe them away and correct me. And yet, Lord, if this is your call to your congregation, Lord, to each person here, that you would reveal their name. Lord, that you would be their provision. And Lord, I pray for the courage and the strength over each of us to say no to compromise and to say yes to you. And so, Lord, we need you. Empower us. Empower this church in the incredible name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with us as we finish off our our morning worship service here.
Amen. Dear Lord, I thank you again that we could come together this morning and worship even when the roads aren't that great. You're always the same. You never change and you're always with us. Just pray blessings upon our days. In your name, Father. Amen.